From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. A St. Louis court awards $72 million to the family of a woman who died of cancer linked to a popular hygiene product, baby powder. What her lawyers had been able to show the jury is that going back really for decades, Johnson & Johnson was aware that there was science that showed an association between long-term use of baby powder and ovarian cancer. Also, 30 years after the meltdown at Chernobyl, some nearby areas are still hazardous, but nature is showing remarkable resilience. I've been studying radiation for 25 years, and we can't see it, we can't smell it. It kind of has all the elements of things that make us afraid, and I think perhaps we're more afraid than we should be. Yes, it's dangerous, but it's perhaps not as dangerous as we think it is. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Baby powder sounds perfectly safe, but last year we covered a danger that took us by surprise, the increased risk of ovarian cancer that talcum powder may pose to women who use it for personal hygiene. Johnson & Johnson marketed talc under its iconic brand Baby Powder, and at the time, numerous lawsuits had accused the company of knowing there was a risk, yet failing to disclose it to customers. Now, one of those lawsuits has resulted in a finding of liability and an order for Johnson & Johnson to pay $72 million to the family of Jacqueline Fox, a daily user of its baby powder and talc-based shower-to-shower, who died from ovarian cancer last October. Bloomberg reporter Susan Burfield wrote about this case and the increased scrutiny of Johnson & Johnson over baby powder and joins me now. Susan, welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks so much for having me on. First, what attracted you to this story? You know, I saw the news in February that jury in St. Louis had awarded the family of a woman who had died of ovarian cancer $72 million because there was a suspected link between Johnson & Johnson's baby powder and her cancer. And I thought, baby powder, you know, it seems like a pretty harmless product. And it was very intriguing to me that there was science apparently going back decades that most of us didn't know about. So I started to look into it. Well, talk to me about this case, the Jacqueline Fox case. Why do you think the jury decided that Johnson & Johnson was at fault and awarded her such substantial, or rather her estate, such substantial damages? Well, I think Jacqueline Fox was a very sympathetic plaintiff for the jury. You know, she testified before she died that her mother had taught her to use baby powder, that she used it every day for her adult life, right up until the time that she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And what her lawyers had been able to show the jury is that going back really for decades, Johnson & Johnson was aware that there was science that showed an association between long-term use of baby powder and ovarian cancer. And we should mention this is using baby powder genitally. Johnson & Johnson had considered it to be more of a public relations problem than anything else. They didn't consider the science to be valid. But I think the jury was persuaded that Johnson & Johnson had been hiding something and that they knew of a risk, they were covering it up, and that they were potentially endangering some of their most loyal customers. And how did Johnson & Johnson market baby powder to adult women? 
Right. So, you know, it is called baby powder. You know, it was, it is an important part of their baby care business. And it was one of the original consumer products that Johnson & Johnson sold. It's been on the market for about a hundred years. And over time, they realized, I think, that women were starting to use it. And so they shifted their advertising pretty early on, but then more dramatically in the 60s and 70s with, you know, a variety of ads that kind of suggested if you want to feel clean and fresh, you could just like snatch the powder away from your baby. And they specifically began targeting Black and Hispanic women who they found were some of the most loyal customers. You know, as overall sales of baby powder started to slow, they began to look at ways in which they could sell more to their best customers. Now, you know, today, and maybe even then, that sounds terrible, you know, that they they were suspicious that there could be some problem. And at the same time, they were increasing marketing. Um, we saw a memo where they suggested that, you know, they should go to black churches, that they should maybe see if Aretha Franklin or Patti LaBelle would be spokesperson. And of course, neither of them agreed to that. So they were making a very determined effort. So at the end of the day, how significant is the risk of talc used genitally by women and the possible link there to ovarian cancer? Mm -hmm. So ovarian cancer itself is not among the most common cancers for women, but it is among the most deadly. And part of that is because it's often not detected early. So though the odds are about one in 70 for most women, you know, there have been studies that show long-term use could make those odds worse to about one in 53. The scientists for the plaintiffs testified that it's a significant statistical increase on the other hand, you know, the odds are still good that as a woman, you will not be getting ovarian cancer. And why was it permissible for Johnson & Johnson to sell something which well, apparently had a link to ovarian cancer? They were concerned about these reports that it had this link. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the science is inconsistent. And what Johnson & Johnson argues and what many groups, government groups and other studies believe is that the data that these studies have relied upon is a little iffy. There could be some bias and that the link, the statistical link is weak. There have been groups that have looked at the studies broadly and have come to that conclusion. Johnson & Johnson stands by the safety of talc. At the same time, there was a ruling in 2005 by kind of the cancer agency of the World Health Organization, WHO, which found after reviewing all of these studies that there was, you know, a possible link. And that forced Johnson & Johnson's supplier to put a warning label on the talc that it supplied to Johnson & Johnson. But Johnson & Johnson still didn't feel that the evidence warranted passing on that warning to consumers. Wait a second. You're saying that when Johnson & Johnson bought the talc from their supplier, it had a label saying mm -hmm. there's a possible risk of cancer here, but Johnson & Johnson decided not to put that label on what went to the public. Yes. So that, I think, was pretty persuasive for the jurors when they heard that. So why was it up to Johnson & Johnson to decide whether or not to put a warning on baby powder labels of this mm -hmm. possible risk of ovarian cancer? Right. Cosmetics are mostly unregulated. You know, the Food and Drug Administration doesn't really have the authority over cosmetics. 
That is a law that goes back to the 1930s. And it's also one that a lot of consumer groups, as well as members of Congress, are trying to update to give the FDA more authority, hopefully more funding, to require some additional safety precautions by the big cosmetics companies. But right now, there's not very much. You know, it's self-regulating. As I understand it, Johnson & Johnson also sells a cornstarch-only baby powder, and apparently there's absolutely no concern about cornstarch being linked to ovarian cancer. Why wouldn't the company simply switch over entirely to cornstarch? It is a really good question that I asked and didn't get an answer, but what I could deduce is that they may have some concerns about how well cornstarch works to do what baby powder is supposed to do, you know, which is keep babies dry and make them smell clean and fresh. That's what they've said, that it doesn't quite measure up. But in many other cases in recent years, Johnson & Johnson has yielded to consumer concern about chemicals in baby products in particular. You know, they have made pledges to remove the formaldehyde from baby shampoo, phthalates, parabens, you know, other chemicals from their products. And in those cases, what they've stated is that we believe those products are safe or we are using them in amounts that are safe. But we also understand that consumers have concern and we want consumers to have peace of mind. So we're removing these. And it is a little hard from the outside to understand why Johnson & Johnson wouldn't just switch over to a product that it already sells. But I think at this point, Johnson & Johnson is tied up in a lot of litigation over this. There have been two cases that have gone to trial. There's a third one that's underway, but there's probably about 1,200 more. And I think faced with that, they're making some different calculations. In 2015, we reported on a lawsuit that Deanne Berg won against Johnson & Johnson. The company was found liable for not warning the risk of ovarian cancer, but there were no damages awarded. What do you make of the fact that uh, Jacqueline Fox's family was, in contrast, awarded $72 million, yet Berg was awarded nothing? I think it speaks to the variation among juries, really. You know, they saw mostly the same evidence. And I guess there's another important distinction between the two cases, and that is that Dan Berg is alive. Jacqueline Fox died just in the months before the trial began. I think Jacqueline Fox, in general, was a very sympathetic plaintiff, you know, because she had used it so long, because she had died. She was Black. You know, the jury heard the evidence that we spoke about before in terms of Johnson & Johnson marketing it to Black women. And I think all of that factored into their decision to award the $72 million judgment. Susan Burfield is a reporter with Bloomberg Businessweek in New York City. Thanks so much, Susan. Thank you very much. Johnson & Johnson says it was disappointed by the ruling and that it firmly believes the safety of cosmetic talc is supported by decades of scientific evidence. Their full statement is on our website, LOE.org. We'll join Peter Dykstra of Environmental Health News, EHN.org, and DailyClimate.org now, and check out what's notable beyond the headlines. Peter's on the line from Conyers, Georgia, as usual. Hi there, Peter. Hi, Steve. Would you care for a little wine? <laughs> you do some whining here just about every week, Peter. No, 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 no. Wine. W-I-N-E. Specifically, the legendary wines of Bordeaux. For the last seven years, there's been a feud fermenting over the impacts of pesticides used in some of the most storied vineyards in the world. 
When a vineyard worker died of a very rare cancer back in 2009, his sister started asking questions and found high disease rates among winery workers in Bordeaux. And some folks suspect that it's a fungicide that's used on Bordeaux grapes. They're calling for a ban or restrictions. And recently, a documentary increased the focus on all of this in France. Yeah, Bordeaux, I, I believe that's the largest wine-producing area of France. Should consumers be worried? Well, there was a study a few years back that concluded that the pesticide risk to wine drinkers was negligible. You'd have to drink enough Bordeaux that you'd be flat broke, and you'd probably have other problems beside the chemicals. But vineyard workers and neighbors might have substantial risks from constant exposure. The wineries and regulators say they'll look at restricting the fungicide use near homes and schools. But others say that's too little and too late. So let's stay tuned to this one. We will. Hey, what's next? China is hatching plans to build floating nuclear power plants in the South China Sea. And, you know, that sounds kind of scary, sort of in a what-could-possibly-go-wrong kind of way, right? But whatever one thinks of nuclear power, you can't say that this is unprecedented, since there are already about 200 floating nuclear reactors in operation. They're called aircraft carriers and submarines and icebreakers. And, you know, it is one way to have plenty of water to stop an accidental meltdown. And China is leading the world with the development of small modular nuclear power reactors. So uh, what's the big deal then? Well, this one's controversial in a very different way and a hugely important way. The reactors are part of China's apparent attempt to colonize a shared body of water that's one in a third million square miles. It's caused an immense conflict with other nations that border the South China Sea and have territorial claims of their own like Taiwan, the Philippines, Malaysia, and Vietnam. Yeah, those neighbors aren't too happy with China building military bases on the artificial islands in that disputed part of the ocean. It's the biggest foreign policy flare-up in that region in decades. And let's compare it to what might happen here that would be similar. China's effort to capture the South China Sea is like if the U.S. told Canada to keep its mitts off the Great Lakes. That certainly wouldn't go over very well. Hey, what do you have from the history vault this week? What Chernobyl was to nuclear disasters, Love Canal was to chemical ones. And, you know, Love Canal was intended to be an actual canal, a shipping route around Niagara Falls. But the builder, one William T. Love, went bust in the 1890s and left a big dry hole in the ground. Love Canal was used as a dump for garbage and chemical waste until it was filled and closed in 1953. And 63 years ago this week, the owners of Love Canal at the time, the Hooker Chemical Company, in an act of runaway decency, sold the site to the Niagara Falls Board of Education for one dollar. A dollar. It sounded like it would be a deal, but I don't think it turned out that way, did it? No, indeed. As part of the deal, the school board promised to never sue Hooker Chemical if something went wrong with building an elementary school in a working class neighborhood on top of a half century's worth of chemical waste. And this would be where Lois Gibbs, who's been on our program several times over the years, enters the picture. She did, and this was in the 1970s when there was a rash of illnesses, many of them quite serious in the Love Canal neighborhood, and citizen activist Lois Gibbs emerged to lead her very angry neighbors in demanding cleanup and justice. The school was bulldozed, over 800 homes were bought out, and the disaster inspired the federal Superfund cleanup program, which labors on with mixed results to this very day. Peter Dykes is with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Talk to you soon, Peter. All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. And you can see more on these stories, including the actual deed to Love Canal, on our website, loe.org. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you.
Thirty years ago, on April 26, 1986, at 1.23 a.m. local time, a steam explosion at the number 4 reactor at the Chernobyl plant in Ukraine led to the worst-ever nuclear power plant accident. With its cooling water gone, the graphite core of the Soviet reactor ignited, and the uranium fuel rods vaporized, sending a plume of radioactivity high into the atmosphere. Soviet officials said nothing for nearly two days, then Swedish authorities detected the radiation, and Russian TV news made a short announcement. An accident has happened at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. One reactor has been damaged. The government has formed a commission of inquiry. The delay meant the workers and their families who lived in the city of Pripyat, just nine miles from the plant, received high doses of dangerous radiation before the order came to evacuate. Attention, attention, dear comrades, to ensure your safety and especially safety of your children, it is necessary to temporarily evacuate the city and surrounding areas in the Kiev region. What was initially billed as a three-day evacuation has lasted 30 years. And Pripyat today is a derelict ghost town, still off-limits to most people, though it's a popular tourist destination now, as the radiation levels from the decay elements of strontium-90 and cesium-137 have dropped as they reach their half-lives. But when Living on Earth's Bruce Gellerman first visited on the 10th anniversary of the disaster, it was a different tale. Here's part of his report. It's a two-hour drive from Kiev to Chernobyl, along rolling hills and peat bogs. Ukrainians say the soil here is so rich you can eat it. At least that's what they used to say. Today, a thousand square miles of land around the plant is off-limits to most people. Eighteen miles from Chernobyl, we enter the exclusion zone. My driver, Petro, is quiet as we pass empty farms, homes, churches, and schools. A week after the disaster, 135,000 people were permanently removed from this area. It is our tragedy. This was a very good place to live. What can we do? This is our fate. To visit Chernobyl requires special permission and an official guide. We're joined by a plant technician who will monitor radiation levels. He sees the look in my eyes. He says we're completely safe. Still, I'm given special clothes to wear. A Russian hat, burly coat, cotton socks, gloves, leather boots, and a face mask, just in case. A faded mural on a vacant apartment building welcomes us to Pripyat. The town was once home to 45,000 residents, plant workers, and their families. The sign reads, the party of Lenin leads us to a communist victory. My guide, Alexander Shevchenko, deadpans an old party slogan. The people of Pripyat really did invite the friendly Adam into their homes. He laughs alone in the silence. But for our Geiger counter, the apartments are ghostly quiet. Plant officials delayed the evacuation of Pripyat for a day and a half. By then, Alexander says, the clouds of radioactive iodine had delivered intense doses to the town's children. Why did they wait 36 hours before they evacuated them? They waited for the order from Kremlin. They knew about the danger, but they waited for the instructions. 
I, I think it is forever, it shouldn't be for forgotten. How to forget it? How to forget this abandoned city? The radiation readings jump as we pass the remains of a contaminated forest buried in a field. It's a two-mile ride from Pripyat to the plant. Chernobyl dominates the desolate marshland. It's a white, windowless monolith, a mile long and nearly a football field high. We're standing at ground zero. Today, what remains of the melted number four reactor is entombed in a massive 24-story sarcophagus. But even 300,000 tons of steel and concrete can't contain the intense radiation within. The levels on our Geiger count are double when we point it at the sarcophagus. It's the most radioactive building on the planet. The amount of radiation released at Chernobyl was 250 times that of the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined. After a minute here, Alexander wants to leave this place. Why is that? Because it's rather high. You know, I've been inside the sarcophagus four times. What is it like? What does it look like inside? Racks, ruins. Ruins, racks, and high level of radiation. <laughs> Only two minutes allowed. That was Alexander Shevchenko, who acted as a translator for Living on Earth's Bruce Gellerman when he reported from the wrecked Chernobyl plant in 1996, just 10 years after the disaster. It's 30 years on now, and though nobody lives in the crumbling apartment buildings in Pripyat, thousands continue to work at the wrecked plant to maintain its safety. And since the disaster, plenty of research is being carried out on the continuing effects of the catastrophe. Among those researchers is James Smith, professor of environmental science at Portsmouth University in the UK. I first went there in 1994, and at the time we were studying the transfer of radioactivity in aquatic ecosystems, so in lakes and rivers around the zone and around the power station. And we were looking at how the radioactivity got into the rivers and lakes, how long it was going to be there, and how it got taken up by the aquatic food chains. So uh, how much in the way of contamination did you find in those early years? So in the first few weeks and months after the accident, the radioactivity in the rivers and lakes went down very quickly because a lot of the radionuclides, a lot of them decayed very quickly out of the environment. But radiocesium, which is the one that we're all worried about at the moment, because it has a 30-year half-life, it's around in the environment for a long time, that accumulates in the aquatic food chain. So broadly, what we found after Chernobyl was what people had seen after the nuclear weapons testing was this high bioaccumulation of radioactive cesium, not just in fish, but in many foodstuffs. And uh, what else did you look at in terms of organisms? We've looked at aquatic insects, 
So we did a study together with some biologist colleagues of mine to look at the communities of what we call invertebrates, so little insects that live in the sediments of these lakes. How are they faring after the big radioactive release? So I have to ask you, are the bugs being bugged? Uh, Apparently not. (laughs) We'd studied eight lakes of different levels of contamination, so some of them near natural background radiation levels, and up to a lake called Globoki, which is the most contaminated lake we studied at Chernobyl. And we didn't find any difference in the aquatic insects in the different lakes. And in fact, Globoki, it wasn't statistically significant, but it did have the highest diversity and abundance of aquatic insects. Hmm, interesting. Now, you continue to go back. How aware have you been of radiation levels dropping? And how does that affect the health of the wildlife, do you think? Well, We've also looked at mammals in the exclusion zone. So the exclusion zone, it's about 4,000 square kilometres of land and roughly half of it's in Ukraine and half of it's in Belarus to the north of Ukraine. And we worked with our Belarusian colleagues who study their sector of the zone, so their half of the exclusion zone. And we found it in a paper we did last year that the mammal communities are doing very well. The Belarusians had used helicopters to survey the zone for wild boar, I think you call them hogs in the States, uh, roe deer and elk. And uh, what they found was an increasing population from about one to two years after the accident up to 10 years after the accident. It seems that the wildlife is doing okay. How, How safe would it be for people to move back there? Most levels of radiation, even if they're very high at Chernobyl at the moment, It's quite a small risk, but it's a risk that often humans don't choose to take. The exclusion zone is uninhabited because we consider that a risk of, say, one in a thousand risk of getting cancer in later life to a human is not a risk that it's fair for a person to have. So that's why the exclusion zone's uninhabited. But for a mammal population, so a population of wolves or wild boar, this relatively small risk doesn't affect the population although in in rare occasions it might affect an individual. I have to ask you, when you go there, what do you wear in terms of dosimeters? Something on your body to tell how much radiation you've got. Yeah, we always always wear a dosimeter. Usually we go for about two weeks, and we go to various spots. We're not in the hot spots all the time. And I get a dose of about 0.1 or 0.2 millisieverts, and that probably doesn't mean very much to most no, people. No, it doesn't. Tell me, what does it mean? <laughs> so in the UK, we get about 2.7 millisieverts every year from natural radiation and from X-ray diagnostics. So it's about 20 times lower than I'm getting anyway in the UK. So the radiation dose is now in the exclusion zone. There are some real hot spots which you have to be very careful of, but they're quite small, and most of the zone, you can go on a two-week visit and you don't get too big a radiation dose. So, of course, you don't research on humans directly. Your perspective on the effects of human health in this accident? People are always understandably interested in what the human consequences have been, but statistically it's going to be very difficult to see that because we can't distinguish between a cancer that's come from radiation and a cancer that's come from other causes. And so, unfortunately, in developed countries, between about a quarter and a third of people die of cancer. It's very difficult to see this small increase of risk of cancer from Chernobyl in amongst those other natural cancers, if you like. 
So I think statistically we'll probably never know how many people have died from Chernobyl, but the estimates have been in the, say, 8,000 people. Now, there was quite a flap about the question of thyroid cancer, of course, which is something that affects young people as well. So that type of cancer, to what extent do you see that among animals? don't think there have been any studies of that. I don't think anybody's really looked at that. It's clear, as you say, there's been a big increase in thyroid cancer, particularly in Belarus, since the accident. So there have been several thousand cases since the accident. And that was primarily due to the fact that the Soviet Union then didn't take enough precautionary measures to stop people eating contaminated milk, contaminated produce after the accident. Unfortunately, thyroid cancer is one of the more treatable of cancers, but it's still a serious disease. Now, I know this isn't your particular area of expertise, but there appear to be different suggestions as to the area's future. Some are suggesting to use it to store high-level waste, or others say, hey, it should just continue as a nature reserve. Where does that debate stand from your understanding? I think we're getting conflicting views from various people in Ukraine on this. I think a few weeks ago, the Ukrainian government declared the zone as a, a nature reserve, which it kind of has been because the animals have been protected by the fact that there aren't people there. But also there's discussion about using it as a waste storage site. I mean, I'm not a geologist, so I can't comment on the geological suitability of the site. But from a human perspective, it makes a lot of sense to me because people quite understandably don't like waste, nuclear waste sites next to their houses. As it is, I don't think people will go and live there again. People understandably don't particularly want too many people. So I think the exclusion zone will will remain pretty much as it is, as a kind of strange wildlife reserve. As far as you've seen, it seems that nature's pretty resilient. How fair is that observation? I think that's true. I mean, you could say that radiation is not perhaps as bad as we think. I've been studying radiation for 25 years and thinking and talking to people about it and thinking about how we perceive it. And it's something that we're naturally frightened of quite understandably because we tend to associate it with the horrible nuclear bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, very awful events like Chernobyl and the Fukushima accident. We can't see it, we can't smell it. It kind of has all the elements of things that make us afraid and I think perhaps we're more afraid than we should be. Yes, it's dangerous, but it's perhaps not as dangerous as we think it is. Jim Smith is a professor of environmental science at Portsmouth University in the UK. Thanks so much, Jim, for taking the time. Okay, pleasure. Coming up, winning the fight to protect turtle nests and indigenous land rights. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from Wonder Capital, an online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar projects across the U.S. More information and account creation at wondercapital.com. That's wonder with a U. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. This week, we continue our coverage of the 2016 Goldman Environmental Prize winners. The prize is awarded each year to six grassroots activists who are champions of the natural world, with winners selected from each of the five inhabited continents plus an island nation or territory. Earlier, we profiled winners Maxima Acuna, a farmer in Peru who fought a massive gold mine, 
and student Destiny Watford, who mobilized opposition to a bid to build a huge polluting trash incinerator in South Baltimore. Now we turn to Zuzana Kaputova, a public interest lawyer from Slovakia, who spoke at the prize ceremony in San Francisco. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for the honor to be here with you tonight. Let me express my deepest gratitude to the Goldman Environmental Foundation. Your award is a great encouragement for me, as well as hundreds of other people in Slovakia. Ms. Kaputova led a campaign to shut down an old toxic waste dump and stop the construction of a new one in her hometown of Pezinok, where leukemia rates are eight times higher than the national average. She combined grassroots activism and legal strategies to fight the landfills, and in 2013, the Supreme Court of Slovakia ordered the old landfills shut down and canceled the permit for the new one. The ruling affirmed an earlier decision by the EU Court of Justice and underscored the right of the public to participate in environmental decision-making throughout the European Union. Our story has given hope to many other people who fight against reckless developers. In Slovakia, we are still learning lessons about democracy after the fall of communism. But no country has democracy working well on autopilot. We cannot let it run without our involvement. The same goes for the protection of our planet. It needs engagement. Thank you. Holding governments accountable for upholding the rights of their people was the theme of this year's winners, including Lang Uch, who is fighting against deforestation in Cambodia. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, today I'm very grateful for the opportunity to tell you about the real situation in Cambodia. Lang Uch grew up in a family of poor farmers living in the forest during the brutal Khmer Rouge dictatorship. He won a scholarship to attend law school and after graduating, founded the Cambodia Human Rights Task Force to fight illegal logging and protect land rights. Lang Uch went undercover as a timber dealer, driver, and tourist, putting his life at risk in order to expose Cambodia's illegal logging crisis to the world. His photographs and videos showed collusion between the Cambodian government and illicit loggers. Eventually, the government was forced to cancel 23 concessions that had been granted to illegitimate logging operations, effectively protecting 220,000 acres of forest. At the Goldman Prize ceremony, Mr. Uch called on the world community to keep up the pressure on the Cambodian government. I would like to ask all of you to participate in our campaign and tell your government to use their influence in Cambodia to end exploitation in our land. The forest does not belong to only me. It also belongs to you, and it also belongs to the people around the world. Ladies and gentlemen, please join us to fight against illegal logging in Cambodia. We also spoke with some of the Goldman Prize winners before the award ceremony. My name is Edward Loure. I come from Tanzania, and I work with an organization called Ujamaa Community Resource Team. Edward Loure is a member of the cattle herding Maasai people, and his Ujamaa Community Resource Team works to secure land rights for Tanzanian pastoralists and hunter-gatherers like the Maasai and the Hadzabe. 
As a child, his family was pushed off their land when Tanzania created the Tarangire National Park, now considered a premier wildlife reserve. Edward Luray says that too many indigenous people have been relocated off their lands to make way for parks. There's a number of national parks created in the Maasai land. That's include the Serengeti National Park, the Manyara National Park, the Tarangire National Park. These national parks, the big portion of their land it was, was belongs to the Pasuelisi Maasai land. And now people have to get out of it. So, in other words, traditional lands for thousands of years, people are being pushed off that land because of supposedly the national park. Yes, for conservation. But your people have been conserving that land for thousands of years. Sure. But now, you know, there is movements of conservation with no human face. That people want to have just a conservation land. The human activity is not allowed. People value more the wild animals rather than community livelihood. This community um, have been there for centuries and they know very well how to stay together with these old animals. And some of the research even shows that if you take away these communities, the wildlife number reduced. Because it is difficult for a poacher to come and poach an animal when somebody is there. So what did you decide to do about this problem? After we found that the, these communities are now outside the protected areas, but still, the small land that they have, it is not secured. It is still insecure. So our big role is to facilitate the securing of these community lands to make sure that the land that they own now has to be more secured. Studies show that when indigenous people are able to secure land rights, it generally leads to greater conservation of natural habitats. In the fight to ensure that the pastoralists and hunter-gatherers in Tanzania had a legal title to the land they were living on, Edward Luray and his colleagues read up on property law in Tanzania. They discovered that they could apply for something called a Certificate of Customary Right of Occupancy, or CCRO, which would grant entire villages communal land rights. Land in Tanzania is typically held by a single property owner, but the CCROs would secure the land based on a traditional communal ownership structure. The pastoralists and hunter-gatherers, their way of life is living communal and use the resources communally. I myself come from the pastoralist community, so I know this lifestyle before. These certificates will protect the interests of communal sharing of resources. We try to convince the government to adapt it, and now they have agreed, and we want to do it more. How much land so far do you think you've been able to secure? By end of this year, we are going to secure 300,000 hectares of land, and we want to do it more. And I hope also this recognition will also give us a room to connect for more donors that it can also be supporting us in securing more lands for this community. At this moment, we, work, we are only working with 76 communities around the northern part of the country. And there are so many. We want to help them. But due to the limited resources, we can't. So what lessons do you think that indigenous people in other parts of the world can learn from your fight? Having communal land ownership is a very great opportunity 
for other people to learn around the world because when you secure communal land, you will be securing a land that will save big group of people compared to an individual land that belongs to only an individual. And it will be a land that will be more protected by the whole entire community because it belongs to all of them. And uh, it will also be a land that will not be easier for someone to sell. It will not be easier for someone to use as a collateral to get money in the bank compared to the individual lands. So you don't have to think about how do I secure this piece of land for my young children in the future. Just secure community land is done. Edward Luray says there are still many indigenous people in Tanzania who need to secure communal land rights, but for now, he says he's excited that the work so far is being recognized. I'm really excited because I've been doing this work for for the decades and I never knew whether someone is watching me. And uh, mm-hmm. now it happens that somebody is watching me and he's really acknowledging what I'm doing. So it's really great. It's something that I, I did not even expect before. Edward Lure is one of the winners of this year's Goldman Environmental Prize. Really great to talk with you. Thanks. Thank you, too. Of course, Puerto Rico is part of the U.S., but it's not a state. And this year, the Goldman winner for the island territories is Luis Jorge Rivera Herrera, an environmental scientist from Puerto Rico. He won for his work protecting a strip of undeveloped coast in the area of Luquillo Beach called the Northeast Ecological Corridor. This hotspot of biodiversity is home to more than 50 at-risk species, and in the late 1990s, developers proposed building two giant resorts with room for thousands of tourists. But Luis Jorge and others rallied public opposition to the development in order to protect the region's natural resources and the incredible ecology found in the corridor. Welcome to Living on Earth. Hi, Steve. Tell me a bit about this land that you've worked so hard to protect. What is the Northeast Ecological Corridor? Okay, this is a piece of land that extends approximately 3,000 acres in the northeastern region of Puerto Rico, specifically in the municipalities of Luquillo, and Fajardo. The corridor is possibly best known as one of the best nesting sites for the endangered leatherback sea turtles in any area within the U.S. jurisdiction. However, the corridor is also important due to all of the habitats that it harbors. For example, there are coral communities, seagrass beds, mangrove forest, and even bloodwood swamps, which is a type of wetland that is almost endangered in Puerto Rico. Also, what makes the corridor really important is its relation with the Junque Rainforest, which is also managed by the U.S. Forest Service, because within a very limited space that runs approximately 13 miles in length, you can find all six life zones that are in Puerto Rico, meaning, for example, that in the corridor you can find coastal dry forest, and at the other end, you can find a tropical mountainous rainforest. And just to put that characteristic into perspective, if you want to see six life zones, let's say here in the U.S. mainland, you will have to travel hundreds, if not thousands of miles. And on that corner of the island, by just traveling 13 miles, you can see all that biodiversity. You talked about the leatherback turtles. 
Lukio, of course, is famous for its beach. Fajardo mm-hmm. is also a, a popular jumping off uh, places for the offshore islands and the beaches. But the leatherback turtles are bothered if there are lights on the shore that confuse them in nesting. How were you able to deal with the, the pressure of development in this area? Well, initially, we were trying to bring up to the public's attention the value of the corridor. And some people sympathized about the need to protect such an extraordinary natural area. But also we had to confront people and make them aware about the impacts that the resorts that were being proposed on the corridor would have had on their daily livelihoods. Some of the projects were asking the government to exempt them from providing public access to the beach there in Luquillo and Fajardo. And as islanders, we feel a really big connection with our coastal resources. So, you know, that didn't set too well into many people. The other big impact that the resort would have had was on public water supply, because especially during the early 2000s, many communities are really bad or deficient public water supply. So you can imagine what would have happened if over 4,000 hotels and villas who have been built on that same area where many communities were already lacking from water. How much support was there from the people of Puerto Rico to protect this territory? Well, that, that really was what made the difference. At the beginning of our campaign, we were trying to convince the government that building those two resorts was a bad idea, but that didn't work out. Then we went into courts, and that also helped us gain momentum and especially time in order to promote more citizen participation and attention towards the protection of the corridor. And one specific activity that probably was a game changer was the celebration of a festival that we have been conducting or running for the last 11 years. It's called the Festival del Tinglar or the Leatherback Festival. And although it revolves around the leatherback, it is a way to introduce people to the value of the corridor, also through cultural activities and music. So possibly if there are citizens or people that are not that involved or interested in the protection of natural resources, we can grab their attention through that cultural activity and they finally become engaged in protecting the area. So how are things now? These resorts weren't built and the entire corridor, along with the turtles that like to come ashore, are doing much better? Yeah, definitely. After many years of a struggle, finally in April 2013, the corridor was finally designated by law as a nature reserve. Nevertheless, there is a lot of work that still needs to be done. Today, there's still about 30% of the lands within the corridor that are still privately owned. So we are also trying to support the government looking into possible sources of financing in order that the government can complete the acquisition of those private lands. So the Puerto Rico Department of Natural and Environmental Resources can manage the whole area comprehensively. We are also working with the local government municipalities in order to develop a participatory or citizen planning process 
that will also integrate the surrounding communities and downtown Luquillo into whatever economic opportunities could arise as part of uh, ecotourism and tourism activities taking place in the corridor. What would you say to, to other people who are wrestling with this question of balancing development because many people have low incomes in Puerto Rico and protecting the environment? Well, first of all, we need to acknowledge that for any kind of development to take place, we need to protect and conserve our natural resources. And that doesn't mean that we cannot use them. It's just use them wisely. For example, right now, the island is submerged in a very difficult economic and fiscal situation. There's even a bill that has been filed in the U.S. House of Representatives that will, will allow this oversight board to repeal any environmental law or regulation in the island in order to supposedly allow and fast track any projects that they deem are important to promote economic development. But if we don't protect our natural resources, for example, we could end up lacking water or having water that has been polluted. And I believe that is something that people from Flint, Michigan, or here in California can relate deeply. Because if you don't have enough water resources and in good quality, you cannot basically develop any kind of activity. So we need to acknowledge that for development to take place, we need to use our natural resources wisely. Luis Jorge Rivera Herrera is an environmental scientist in Puerto Rico and winner of this year's Goldman Environmental Prize. Thank you so much. Thank you for your interest and your time. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Jenny Doring, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Peter Boucher, Adelaide Chen, Jamie Kaiser, Jennifer Marquis, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from John Gesso, Jake Rigo, and Noel Flatt. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. From Gilman Ordway and from Solar City, America's solar power provider, Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888-997-1703. That's 888-997-1703. PRI Public Radio International.